Let's pray. Father, we want to consciously do that right now. We ask that you would help us. Like a child whose gaze is distracted by so many things and has a hard time focusing on you, Lord, that's us. We're, we have such a hard time turning our eyes to you, focusing on you. And Lord, we just ask, would you take our head in, in your hands and, and turn our gaze to you to see Jesus? God, we confess that the things of this world, the troubles of this world, the cares of this world, the problems, the strife, the, the issues, the difficulties in this world, they, they make us fuzzy in our thinking. They make it difficult to remain focused on you. But God, thank you that you mercifully give us these times, you mercifully give us yourself to, to turn our gaze towards you. God, would you do that this morning? Would you turn our gaze, turn our eyes to you, Lord? Because you alone are our help. All the problems we see, God, you are our help. And so, Lord, we pray that we would see you, the source of all our help and hope. And, and God, I pray that you would see that you, Jesus, are the only way that we can receive the Father. So, God, I pray that we would see your son, that we would see Jesus more clearly and we respond in desperation and hope and in faith. God, would you use these words this morning to do those things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. If you're here with us, thank you for being here with us in person and for enduring the mask wearing None of us love it, but all of us want to love each other, so thank you for doing that as a sign to love each other, and thank you, Bruce, for loving it. Um, that's great. Um, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 2. If you're watching from home, we just want to tell you that you are a part of our body, and you are no less members of our body, and um, we are, uh, we are united with you. You're not separate. Even though you're separate physically from us, you are not separate from us. And you are a critical part of our body. And after the service today, um, when I close and band comes up, if you want to come on over, you can come over. We'll have a time of fellowship afterwards just to hang out in the green uh, up, up top outside where the risk is a little lower. And we'd love to have a chance to to get to share what God is doing in our lives with each other. We'll turn your Bibles to John chapter 2. We're continuing in our series in the book of John. This is the very second account after Jesus has done the miracle of turning water into wine, replacing the purification system of the Old Testament with his own wine, with his blood. So let's, let's read John chapter 2. Verses 12, uh, 12 to 25. This is God's holy inspired word for us today. Now maybe you're familiar with the story. I want you to, to, to read this as if it's God's word for you today. So let's hear that as well. After this, he, speaking of Jesus, went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen 
and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip out of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and he overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will rise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. Will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Let's ask God for his grace to help us understand this. Let's pray. Father, we need you. We need you to make your word fresh. We need you to understand it. We need you to apply it to our lives. Would you enliven us by your spirit? Would you give me your words to speak? And Lord, would you give grace to all to hear and not be distracted and to apply? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm a father of six children. Most of you know that. Um, I've got five of them sitting here, one serving in the back. But I've got six kids, and I would do anything for them. And I would want them to have whatever they needed in life, the best things in life. And I'm sure that all parents here would agree with that. If you were a good parent, um, you want your kids to know joy and peace and fulfillment and for their life to have purpose. And, and as a father, suppose that I told my, my daughter or my son, suppose that I told them that I said, hey, you know, whoever, Abby, Noah, whoever, whichever the ones of my kids, you know, I, I know how you can find a purpose in your life and, and where you can find true joy, true peace, true happiness. I, I know where you can find the thing you're really looking for to answer all those questions in life, to find purpose and peace and joy. And I'm going to tell you where it is, but I'm going to put every obstacle in your path. I'm going to try to stop you from getting that. I wouldn't be a very good father, would I? You can answer that. That's okay. You can say, no, I'd be a terrible father. I'd be a terrible father if I tried to say, I know the very purpose that for your whole life that you'll find joy and fulfillment and happiness, but then I try to keep them from that. So imagine that I told my kids, okay, this is the place where you can find all joy, true happiness and fulfillment. But I said, you know what? When they go to get that, when they go to find that place, I stop them and I block them every step of the way. Or I put up distractions in the place. Or I, I, I set out a, an ice cream buffet over here, right? Ice cream's great, but it's not ultimate joy. But I set up some lesser joys, ice cream factory here and, and said, hey, free ice cream or free Krispy Kreme for those who like that. Or I said, you know what, here, so here's the ultimate gaming systems 
free video games, or maybe it's television, or maybe it's all, the, all your best friends and all the most fun people you can imagine being around, and I put them over here. And so then I start crowding the stage here with coolest computers or videos or friends or activities or money or iPads or interesting or challenging things. And then in between those things, I put barriers and walls and maybe pits and all kinds of things to distract them, to keep them from true joy and true purpose. I wouldn't be very good, would I? I'd be quite, thank you. Thanks for saying no, it's great. No, I'd be terrible. And if I liked them, if I loved them, if I was kind to them, I would actually remove all those good things. I would take away the the, the video games, the ice cream buffet, the Krispy Kreme. Now, I love Krispy Kreme. It's not a bad thing. But I would take away all these things. Say, look, those are, those are just mere distractions. Sports, hobbies, uh, recreation, all your friends, social media. Those are just distractions. Let me not keep, have them keep you from the main purpose. And when we read this passage in John, that's essentially what Jesus is showing us an object lesson. He's saying that he's got a purpose for us. He is, he is, we have a purpose in God. Our purpose is to worship God, to be with God. God is the place where ultimate fulfillment or ultimate joy is. And Jesus here, he's removing all of those things that keep his people from true worship. And there are three questions you need to ask in this passage. If, if you're reading this passage for the first time, or maybe for the hundredth time or thousandth time, you, you really should ask some questions. You should always ask questions of a narrative, by the way. You should always ask questions when there is a narrative, when there's a, a story being told in the Gospels in the New Testament, because the stories are there for a reason. The accounts are there for a reason. Jesus did this for a reason. And so he's really angry here, right? And um, we have coloring sheets for the kids, and one of those coloring sheets is like, Jesus is angry, and he's flipping over the tables. And they might be wondering, why is Jesus angry? That's a good question. And if you're a kid and you want, there's some coloring sheets on the back table. You can go get one now and come back, as long as your parents are cool with it. So, but I want you to be wondering, just like maybe the kids are, as they, they see this picture of Jesus being angry. And you wonder, why is Jesus angry? You need to ask that question of the text. Why is he angry? What... Why is he doing this? What's causing Jesus to behave in a way that doesn't seem characteristic for the Jesus meek and mild we read about, right? What causes him to behave like this? It's shocking. If you were there in the temple grounds and you saw this guy come in and he starts turning tables over and he starts whipping people and whipping oxen and sheep and saying, get this stuff out of here. You'd be like, what in the world? Why is this guy, man so angry? And we're meant to have that reaction here. Why, why is he so angry? What's he doing? And then, and then the, the second question is, is, what is he doing? What's he actually doing? We see the physical actions that he's doing, and that's important, and they're also representative of what he intends to do, what he came to do. What's he doing here? Why is he angry? And what's he doing? What's he really doing? And then the third question we need to ask, the essential questions, not only why is he angry, what's he really doing, but what does he mean by this sign that he gives? He he gives a sign. He says the sign is that this temple, I'll destroy it and raise it up again in three days. What does he mean by that? What's he teaching us? What's he showing us? What temple is he talking about destroying and raising up? And the original readers would have had all those questions. We should have those questions too. 
in the very beginning, the setting, he, he, he gives us a setting. He's just left. He's just left the, the place where he turned the water to wine. Then he goes down to Capernaum with his mom and his brothers and his disciples. And, and then he's heading to Jerusalem for a feast of Passover. Look in verse 13. It says, the Passover of the Jews was at hand. The Passover of the Jews was at hand. It's, it's important. There's a, there's, there, all the details in a story, they, they set the stage for what we're supposed to receive. And so we're seeing that the Passover was at hand. So you have to know, what is the Passover? And if you have not read the Bible before, you're not familiar with this, the Passover is a feast that God gave to the Israelites to commemorate what he did for them hundreds of years prior what had happened was the, the Israelites, they had gone into the land of Egypt to find food, and, and God had provided extra food in Egypt through Joseph. And then after 400 years, the Pharaoh had, had put them into captivity. We don't know how long exactly, but they were in captivity. And they were groaning, and they were in pain, and they were enslaved. They had no way out, and, and life had become hard and, and untenable for them. And so God raised up Moses. He rescued Moses, put him in a in a reed basket to preserve his life. And he, he raised Moses up. You know the story. He raises Moses up and he makes Moses a leader. He brings Moses back to Egypt and Moses is going to deliver the people. And so Moses gives this powerful message about delivering God's people. And he says, let my people go. And, and Pharaoh says, no way. So Moses is like, well, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to show you some signs. I'm going to show you some, some things, some plagues. I'm going to give some plagues to show you that God is the one who's commissioned me. And so he does that and he brings all these plagues on Egypt. So we know that all of these different plagues came on Egypt when Pharaoh said, okay. And then he, he, he meant to release the people and he didn't and he relents and then, and then a plague would come. And that was the same cycle that kept coming. And then finally, there was a final plague that, that God told Moses about. And he told Moses about the fact that I'm going to do something that Pharaoh won't be able to keep you. He'll, he'll send you out. He'll let you go. I'm going to come and I'm going to, my presence is going to come and I'm going to kill all the firstborn. I'm going to kill all the firstborn. And you're going to become so odious they're going to want to let you go. But he said, there's a way that your firstborn won't die. There's a way that you'll be saved, that you'll be rescued. There's a way that you can be safe. And the way that you can be safe is if you kill a lamb and you eat it, and then you put his blood on the doorpost. Exodus 12 tells us of that. It says in verse 7, it says, Then they shall take some of the blood. He's giving this command to Moses. Take some of his blood. You kill a lamb, take some of the blood of the lamb, and you put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel. So all around the entryway to the house. How you get into the house this entryway into the house is covered by the blood. And it says, then they'll eat the flesh that night. It's the Lord's Passover. And he says, well, I'll pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I'll strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on the, all the gods of Egypt, I'll execute judgments on the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. They'll take refuge in the house under the blood. They come into the house. They where they come in is protected by the blood. And it says, and when I see the blood, I'll pass over you. No plague shall befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And so that's what happened. 
Everyone who trusted in the blood over their house, the entryway, they were safe in that house. God protected them. He preserved them. And so they, he instituted a feast. It's called the Passover. And every year they would come and they would gather and they would make sacrifices, atoning sacrifices, and, and in commemoration of the fact that, that the blood was sacrificed in their place. The lamb was sacrificed in their place. And so God's wrath did not visit them. The lamb was the means by which the wrath of God would pass over. And so all the faithful Jews that had come, and they, they poured into Jerusalem because they too wanted God's favor. They wanted, they wanted God's wrath to pass over them. And so anyone who trusted in God would do that. They would come to Jerusalem and sacrifice. And it was massive. Jerusalem wasn't a very physically large city at the time, but it swelled in its ranks up to about 2 million people would come in from the entire country at Passover. I, I used to go to this Christian festival called Fishnet. Now, they would they'd have a, thousands of people would camp out in tents all over the place and they would spread out everywhere. We'd gather together and have this big kind of rock concert and teachings and it would be like three days and it was incredible. This is bigger than that. This was a seven days of feasting and, and celebration culminating with sacrifices and it was busy and it was loud. It was, it dwarfed Woodstock if you can kind of imagine that. And they were supposed to bring animals to sacrifice. But, you know, if they're coming from a long distance, you couldn't bring animals from a distance. So people would set up booths to sell animals to sacrifice. They would sell ox and they would sell sheep, some of the prescribed sacrifices. They would, they would sell pigeons for the poor people who couldn't afford a sheep or an ox. And it was a needed service. It used to be in the Kidron Valley, the valley right across from Jerusalem, but... It kept moving closer because it was more convenient, right? It's, it's really inconvenient to get your sacrifice from far away. Why not just actually come up to the temple and get it? And so it moved outside the temple gates. And we don't know if it was just this first year that it moved here or Jesus just first is just fed up. But, but now those animals, the trade, it's a, it's a necessary thing. But it's, it's moved into a place where it should never be. And Jesus comes into the temple grounds and he sees all these animals. And he sees these money changers. Yes, they had to change money because they would, they would give a temple tithe and it had to be in a certain denomination. They had to exchange that with whatever their local currency was. But they moved all this for, for convenience sake to make things more acceptable, more palatable to people worshiping. They put it all in the outer courtyard of the temple. And so now we see that Jesus is angry when he sees all this. And, and you got to wonder, well, well, why is he angry? It, it's more convenient, you know, it's more convenient to have the animals right there. It's more convenient to have the money changing hands right there. But why is he angry? Why is Jesus doing this? And, and what we're going to see is that Jesus is angry because Jesus is passionate about worship. Jesus is passionate about worship. That's what's driving him. It's what's driving Jesus is the desire to worship God and for God's people to worship God. And you have to wonder, well, well why is that? We'll, we'll see that in a moment. But he comes into the temple because, and he's passionate about worship. And he comes into these temple precincts. And, and by the way, the, the, the word here used for temple precincts is different from the word we see for temple later, which is the kind of the sanctuary when Jesus says, I'm the temple. Um, I, I'm going to give myself my, my own sanctuary. This is kind of the, the word used for the courts around the temple. And it was probably, we don't know for sure, but probably the court of the Gentiles, where the Gentiles would come in because, right, they couldn't come into the temple itself 
outside of the temple in the, in the common area around the temple and just inside the gates was the court of the Gentiles where, the, where all the nations were meant to come in and worship God. And the Jews who ran the temple, they were like, well, it's more convenient for us if we just put all the animals right there on the outside. And what they were doing, it was they were keeping the nations from worshiping God. They were keeping the Gentiles from worshiping God. And they were making it like a festival in the temple courtyard. It, it, it was the only place that they were allowed to come and worship, and it became like a carnival. There, I want you to imagine the scene. If you, if you come in these, these gates, and there's the temple, you come in this out, outer courtyard, and, and what do you see? What does Jesus see when he comes in? He sees, he sees animals, like, milling around all over the place. And they're loud, and, and they're dirty, and they're stinky, and, and not only the animals are making noise and the people are haggling over the price of the animals and people are trying to lead them away and you hear the cows like mooing and you hear sheep bleeding and then, and then people are changing money and they're maybe even arguing about the exchange rate because we'll see in different accounts in the second cleansing of the temple in the gospels that Jesus does at the end of his ministry that, that the money changers were crooked and so, so they're probably haggling and there's loud noise and I can only imagine, at, 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 I know at Christmas time, my family and I, we like to go to Holly Wild. It's, a, it's an animal park. And we like to go there. And you go there at Christmas time. You get in your car, you pile in, and then you drive onto this field. And there's, it feels like thousands of animals. I'm sure it's hundreds. But there's all these animals all over the place. And they're running everywhere in cars. And it's busy. And it's, it's a little crazy. And then you, you get out afterwards and you go to this petting area and they have all kinds of animals everywhere. I'm not sure how you're supposed to focus on Christ's birth, but it's really fun. But it's really loud. It's distracting. It's chaotic. And the temple is like that. The temple courtyard, that's what Jesus encounters. It's a madhouse. And look what he does in verse 15. He says, I'm making a cord of whips. There's probably all kinds of things being brought in in cages and animals. And so Jesus sees some of these discarded cords. And so he starts picking up the cords. And the disciples are wondering, what's he doing here? And he seems like he's fuming probably. He's fuming. He's angry. And he's looking around. And something's really eating him. And he's frustrated. He's angry. Something's eating him. He says, you know, zeal consumed him. So the disciples are like, something's really eating Jesus. What's eating him? So he's walking around and he's picking up these cords and he starts twisting them together and they're watching him and they're kind of like looking at him out of the side of their eyes. They don't dare to ask him a question. The disciples are like, what is he doing? And then, you know, he keeps going and then Jesus, maybe he wraps around his hand and then he starts whipping things. And the disciples are a little taken aback, I'm sure. And he drives them all out of the temple. You know, so there are millions of people coming to the temple. So I don't know how many, how many animals, hundreds of animals likely, hundreds of people likely selling animals, changing hands, money traders, tables, pigeons, stuff all around. And Jesus, he is, he is on a tear. He is angry and he's kicking them all out. And he drives them out of the temple and he's angry because this was the place where the nations are to come to meet God. And instead of a place for communion with God, there's, a, there's all these distractions. There's all, these, all this noise. 
all this stink, all this stuff, business, transactions, all of these things. You see, originally in the Garden of Eden, man had perfect communion with God. He was able to to be with God, to worship God face to face, walk with God. Man's sin separated him from God. And so what did God provide? In the Old Testament, God provided a way to bring people back into his presence so they could encounter him, at least in part. And it was the tabernacle. It was a place where God put his presence in this box, in this Ark of the Covenant. And, and then he put this box in this tent and the people would gather there. And then he told Solomon to build a permanent temple. And, and so God's glorious presence descends in the temple. And so the temple was the place where people could get close to God because there was no way to get close to God otherwise. There was no way to be close to their maker for be close to the one for whom they were made, the very purpose for which mankind was created, which was to be in communion with God, to worship God, to glorify God. The very purpose of mankind had been defiled, and yet God had made a way in the temple for man to come and find his purpose and be close to God. He had made a system for, for man to, to gather, to come to him, to, to find cleansing, to remove in part the sins of the past and to to have communion with God and find purpose and joy. And yet Jesus finds all these distractions, all these things taking away from, from worship. They had made God's house, I love how it used the words house twice. They had made God's house a house of trade, a house of merchandise, an emporium. They had made God's house a house of commerce. And they removed the only means by which God's people could come to him and they had to come through all these distractions and the Gentiles would have had no means to worship him. The, the Jews' worship was to bring the nations in and the nations would come in. I mean, can you imagine trying to pray with hundreds of people milling around buying stuff and animals making noise and the smell? It's, it's distracting enough on Sunday morning when, when people are checking their phones and doing other things and playing games and things like that are distracting. Uh, I can't imagine having all this stuff happening in the meanwhile. And, and yet the Gentiles are supposed to, to somehow pray here? And so in verse 17, his disciples, they, they get it all of a sudden. They get why he's angry. They say, oh, zeal for your house will consume me. They remembered Psalm 69 where, where David, he's, he's complaining about all these bad things and how people are treating him badly all because he's living for a different purpose. He's living for worshiping God. And zeal for his house is consuming. And the disciples see that, wait a minute, this is, this is the fulfillment of the ultimate king, the ultimate Messiah, the ultimate one who is seeking to worship God. Worship of God, where God is revered and submitted to, it's critical. And so Jesus is angry because they are keeping people from worship. The, the, now think about that for a second. The, the, the importance of worship, it can't be underestimated. Don't underestimate the importance of worship here, not just in the Old Testament, but the New as well. Worship is what we were made for. And if something's keeping you Something's keeping God's people from worship. It's keeping you from what you were made for. Worship is the purpose, the place where you go to find joy and fulfillment and where you can find peace and satisfaction and solace. And if you can't worship, if things are distracting you or keeping you from worship, they're keeping you from the very purpose for which you were made. 
That's one of the reasons why weekly gathering of the saints is important today. It's why, it's why it's important to gather together in person it's why, or, or, or online, but it's important to gather together with God's people every week because we forget and we get distracted really easily. All of these other things in life distract us from the main purpose in life, which is to worship God, to come to him, to find fellowship and communion with God. That's why we need to come. That's why we need to gather that's why we assemble together. It's because worship reminds us, this corporate worship experience, hearing other saints sing, um, seeing God's word, hearing other people, watching other people take notes and, and try to apply it to lives, talking about it during the week. It's important because it reminds us of what our purpose is and it gets us back to that and helps remove all those distractions in life because we're easily distracted by the noise and the stink, the cacophony of this world. It, it crowds in and it crowds out the most important thing in life. If God made us to worship him, to have communion with him, then worship's essential. It's been said that the most important thing about you is what or who you worship. Because that becomes what you're living for. That's what drives you. It's what motivates you. It's what becomes your functional God. And, and even necessary things, animals, necessary sacrifices, necessary business, those things can subtly replace our function, our purpose, what we're supposed to do in worshiping him. Those things can subtly replace and become our functional God. And so Jesus says no. He's angry because God's purpose in the temple was so that man would have a way to be made right with him and come to him and be in his presence and live with him. And, and they had brought in all the cares of this world into the temple, and it was keeping the people from God's purpose. It was a place where they were set everything else aside and meet with God, the one for whom we are made to live in communion with all the time. And, and yet Jesus finds commerce, animals, money changers. Let me ask you, what... What's crowding your life? What's crowding your heart? What's crowding out worship of God for you? Good things? Necessary things? Commerce? But then look at what Jesus does. What's he doing? That's the second thing we're going to answer. What's he doing? Well, he's opposed to everything that takes away from the worship of God. He is opposing everything that keeps us from the worship of God. Jesus is demonstrating he is opposed to everything that keeps us from the worship of God. And so he removes the junk of his father's house. He gets a whip and he drives it all out. This past week, a house three doors down from us went up for sale. We were curious. We were nosy neighbors. We took a look around. The door was open. We went in. It was shocking. Yeah, there was a reason why it was for sale so cheap. Um, it was just full of trash. It, it, it was, I don't know how to describe it. It was like a cat lady, uh, and I'm not against cats, but when I say cat lady, I mean one of those people who have like thousands of cats. It's what it seemed like a hoarder had lived there and then maybe died, and then um, maybe some, some drug addicts came and they took up residence in the house, and then they filled the house with all kinds of junk. So you walk in the door, you could barely walk. There was stuff all over the floor. It smelled bad. I don't know if it was carpet or mold on the floor. Not sure. 
Um, the air was heavy with just stink of all kinds of things. I mean, I wonder what had died in there. The house was just full of all kinds of junk, um, all kinds of litter and bottles and cans and trash. It was, it was just full of garbage and, and, and it would have been impossible. Anybody who's looking at the house is like, there's no way I can live there. I can't live in that house because it's just full of distractions and junk and garbage. It's not the purpose it was intended for. It, the house is meant to be a home, some place of comfort and solace and, and rest. And you could not rest there, nor should you. Um, someone, else, someone actually bought the house. I'm, I'm guessing they're either going to tear it down or try to flip it, but you'd have to get all the junk out first. You'd have to get all the junk out because there's no way you could live in it. And so Jesus, he comes into the temple and he's demonstrating something. You've got to get rid of all the distractions. You've got to get rid of all the stuff that's not intended so you can live in the place where God's presence is, so you can be in God's house. All these things kind of creeped into God's house. And I imagine that hoarder's home, it didn't become that way right away. It was probably slowly every time they dropped a can or all kinds of stuff on the floor, um, it, it accumulated over time. And that's the way it is for here. All these animals have accumulated over time. And over time, they've moved in close and commerce has gone into the temple. And in our lives, it's the same way. The temple, the, the place where we're supposed to encounter God, can get crowded out with all kinds of business and all kinds of things. So Jesus' anger is blazing. I can't imagine this, this scene. He's driving out the sheep. He's driving out the oxen. And he, he gets the tables and he throws them over and he pours out the money changers' coins. And he says, take these things away. Look in verse 16. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. The Father's house, where God's presence dwelled, it was cluttered with, with trade, the business of life. He's not denouncing that those things were necessary, but he's denouncing that those things were crowding out worship. Yeah, it was necessary to have animals, but not there, not crowding out worship. Yes, it was necessary to have business, but not to crowd out worship. Yes, it was necessary to to, to exchange money, but not to crowd out worship. And the problem is the place that was dedicated to approaching God in prayer and, and all feel worship become a place in transacting business and it had become a place where it was noisy and they couldn't focus on God. He's addressing the quality of the worship of God's people. They've defiled worship and, and they've filled it with all these other things. They've violated God's provision for the nations. They've, they've instead chosen convenience. They've made his house of worship, a house of profit. And so he drives away all the things that don't belong. That's what he does here. That's what he's doing. What is Jesus doing? He's driving away all the things that distract and take away from and don't belong in worshiping God. But does Jesus does. He gets rid of what doesn't belong in worship. Why? Because he wants us to, to see the purpose for which we're created. He wants us to enjoy him. And so he's he's a God's a good father. Jesus is a good God, and he he removes all the things that distract and get in the way of worship. The purpose that God had put the temple there for. 
for us. God sometimes does that in our own lives. Jesus, sometimes he takes things away. He removes things. He disciplines. He brings his whip. And he says, no, you're letting these things crowd out the purpose you were made for. So the question for us as we're reading this, you, you need to be asking yourself, what, what, what are those noisy things for me? What are those distracting things? What are those things that I brought in to, to how I'm supposed to worship God that, that they don't belong? They crowd out my worship of God. They have no place um, where, where I'm supposed to be worshiping God with my life. And by the way, all of life is meant to be worshiped. So what things are distracting me from worshiping God in life? What barriers or obstacles are in my life that I put in place that need to be removed, I need, that I need to kick out, that, that I want Jesus to remove? What what endeavors, what hobbies, what work, what affiliations, what political party, what calls, what valuable things, what, what distractions keep you from focusing on and living a life where you're coming to find in your purposes in worshiping God? It might be necessary things, but they've taken over the primary thing. What, what, what necessary things do you need to say no and push away? When needed things take the place of primary things, the primary thing, Jesus picks up the whip and he drives it out. Zeal for his father's house consumes him and he drives out everything opposed to or distracting from the worship of God, the chief purpose of man. And if you're one of God's people, this applies to you. As God's people, you need to remove. They should have already done this in the temple, by the way. People who were in charge of the temple, they should have never allowed those distractions they should have never allowed that business to be transacting, to take those needed things to take the place of the primary thing, the purpose for which they're made. They should never allow those things to come in. And so Jesus has to come in and he has to clean house. God's people are not to allow those things in the first place. That's why Jesus is angry. And so he cleans them out. And so in verse 18, the Jews respond to him and they say, hey, wait a minute, they recognize something's going on here. They don't question, his, uh, they don't question what he's doing. They don't question and say, Jesus, what you're doing is wrong. No, they say, why are you, what sign are you show us for doing these things? What sign do you show us for doing these things? They don't say, you know, it's wrong for you to do those things. They say, what sign do you show us? What authority do you have? It's almost like they're admitting that they, they know those things are wrong, but so what? They're the ones in charge of the temple. They want to be the authority. What authority does Jesus have? Sometimes that's us, right? Sometimes Jesus comes and he says, no. I don't want those things to be first in your life, to be the primary purpose in your life. They're replacing it. And we say, no, Jesus, what authority do you have? He gives an answer in verse 19. He answers them, destroy this temple. So they said they want a sign to show that he has authority and he answers them in a very strange way. He says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. What's he teaching us with that? What's he showing us? What, what sign is he talking about? What temple is he referring to? What sign of the temple, him destroying the temple, is he speaking of that three days he's going to rise up? What sign is he talking about? Well, what, what he's teaching us, what sign he's showing us is that Jesus replaces him, the temple with himself. Jesus replaces the temple with himself. 
The Jews aren't disagreeing with the fact that it was wrong to do that, but they're saying, well, we don't like it. We don't like that you're telling us what to do. Show us a sign. And so he tells them, I'm going I'm to destroy this temple, and in three days I'm going to raise it up. And they think he's nuts. They don't really, they're not really looking for him to be their authority. They're looking for him to prove that he has the right to be their authority. And he's saying that his own death and resurrection proves everything he said is true. The, the, the very sign of the cleansing of the temple, it was actually a fulfillment in Micah, how the, the Messiah comes in and he comes in and he cleans out God's house. They were the leaders of the church. They should have known that. They replaced God's way of worship with their own convenient way. And today, people ask for a sign to believe, right? They're asking for a sign to, to see that he has authority over them. We, we, we do the same thing sometimes. We know sometimes, you know, people will say, well, God, if you'll deliver me from this trial or difficulty, then I know that you'll have authority and then I'll, then I'll believe in you. You know, God, if you'll just heal me, if you'll just heal me of this persistent illness, then I know that you really care and you have authority, then I'll believe you. We give conditions, right? God, if you'll only speak audibly, if you'll only get me out of this problem, out of this jam, God, if you'll speak to me, if you'll show some sign, then I'll believe. But the only sign that we need is the one that he has already given, the greatest sign of all, that, that he has died for us, for our sins, and resurrected on the third day, that's the only sign that we need. Acts 17, the apostles are teaching about it, and they're saying, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed and of this, he has given assurance, he's given a sign to all by raising him from the dead. Don't set any preconditions and ask on what authority. He has all authority and he's proven it by raising himself from the dead. The question is really not for us, what sign will he do, but will we believe the sign he's done? Jesus tells him he'll raise this temple up in three days. The word he uses here is for the holy place, the sanctuary, the place where God's presence dwells. And he's speaking of himself saying, I am the temple. And you might destroy this temple, but I'm going to raise it up in three days and show you that you don't have power over me. I am the place. I replace the place that people come to encounter God. I am God's very presence. I am the way that people encounter God now. And I'm getting rid of, now when he's getting rid of driving these things out, he's getting rid of as well, all the whole way, the means by which people would sacrifice. Because he's replacing it with himself. And the, the Jews are confused. They're like, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. You know, Herod started this temple 46 years ago and it's still not done. And it wouldn't be done until 8063. And then AD 70, the Romans would come and they would tear it down. And so many evangelicals today, they actually still pray for the rebuilding of the physical temple in Jerusalem. Don't do that. That's actually not biblical. Why? Because the temple's already come. It's been rebuilt. Don't look for a physical temple to be rebuilt. Our hope of coming to God, our help, and our place where we meet God has already been raised up. It's already been rebuilt. 
He was speaking, it says in verse 21, about the temple of his body. This, the old system of worship had to be destroyed. The old way of coming to God had to be removed and driven out. And the new way of worship through his own body is how we now come to Jesus, how we come to God. I love what Bruce Milne says. I'll put the quote up for you later. I don't have it here in the slides, but we'll put it up later today. It says, he is, calm, he is claiming nothing less than the reconstituting of the entire worship of God's people around his own purpose, person and mission. The temple will pass into oblivion, not only because it's physically raised, but because it's spiritually obsolete. Jesus' body offered in sacrifice is raised up in power. It will be the new temple where God and humanity, creator and creature, meet face to face. I love it. It's a guy named Leslie Newbegin. He says, the action of Jesus is more than an example of prophetic protest against corrupt religion. It's a sign of the end of all religion. Ironically, the Jews, they would bring about the destruction of Jesus' temple. And they would not recognize the sign of his resurrection. They inaugurate the sign they demand. And then when they put him to death, it proved to be the only one sacrifice that was wholly acceptable to God. The entire sacrificial system was never acceptable. They destroy Jesus' temple. And it becomes, he becomes the only wholly acceptable sacrifice for the atonement of sins. He becomes the ultimate Passover lamb. And he came at Passover time to show that he was replacing that whole system with himself. I love in Revelation 21, 22, get this. In case you're wondering, will there be a physical temple? No. Revelation already told us that. Revelation 21, 22, I saw no temple in it. Speaking of the, the city that's to come, I saw no temple in it. For the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. What's that saying? What's, what's Jesus saying? He's saying, I am the way that people come to know God. I am the way that you will find your ultimate fulfillment, your ultimate purpose, your ultimate hope, your ultimate satisfaction, your ultimate joy, and I am that way, and I'm gonna do whatever I can in your life to remove that, and sometimes that's problematic and it's painful. But he's a good God, and he wants us to come to him because he's the one who replaces the temple enables us to come and worship God. He is where we come to worship God now. He is how we come to worship God. He has atoned for all of our sins so that God's wrath has passed over us so that no longer does his wrath remain. It was poured out on, the, on Jesus in the destruction of the temple of Jesus and then he was raised to life to show that that payment was fully made. The system was completely done. He is now our mediator. The temple was to be the place where God's presence was mediated to man. Jesus mediates God's presence to man. He restores the very purpose for which man is made. Having fellowship with God, communion with God, Jesus is now the way. He became flesh and the flesh dwelt among us. That's what John told us earlier. He's the way we're made right. And the problem is that people want his signs and that, that temporary belief in when Jesus can do for me 
in this world that's not lasting. So people are playing, well, God, deliver me from these things. Deliver me from these problems, and the Lord, I'll turn to you. But then what happens when life gets difficult later on? Well, it's not genuine faith. That's what Jesus encounters in, in verse 23. He says, many people believed in his name, and they saw the signs he was doing. And he says, but Jesus didn't entrust himself to them. Now, he uses the same word for belief there. He says, people believed, but Jesus didn't believe them because he knew what was in them. He knew that they weren't looking Truly from the heart to trust in God's provision. Instead, they just wanted Jesus to do things for him, to be their little miracle worker. Their outward commitment did not show a true heart belief. What is your heart pursuing? Will you choose to believe even when Jesus doesn't give you the signs you want? Will you choose to believe even when you might not be healthy, when you might not be wealthy, when you might not be wise, when things go wrong, when everything in life seems to be falling apart? Will you believe because of the sign he's already given? Jesus, I love Leon Morris says, Jesus calls people to trust him for what he is, not because he passes the test we set. Those who'd been attracted by the miracles would have been ready to try to make an earthly king, but he didn't trust them. He looked for genuine conversion, not enthusiasm for the spectacular. True belief in Jesus means that Jesus truly knows us and we truly know him. We're trusting in him. So I'll ask you some questions as we close. Have the band go ahead and come up. Jesus was angry because... They weren't, they defiled the place of worship. Let me ask you, how's, how's, how's the place of worship for you? Now, in the New Testament, Jesus is the temple. And, and here's the, the amazing thing. As, as we're joined to Jesus, we become the temple, the dwelling place of God as well. So Jesus replaces the whole sacrificial system. And in him, because we're in him, then he calls the church something. He calls us something. He calls us the temple. And so now we, our, our hearts are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so let me ask you, have you crowded out those things in your life that are keeping you from the purpose for which you were made to love God, to know God, to walk in communion with him? Are there things in your life that need to be driven out? Are there things that are crowding out your worship of God? Another thing is that do you come to Jesus? Are you seeking to meet God through him? Are you looking to him as the atoning sacrifice for your sins? Are you passionate about worship of God? Is anything keeping you from worshiping God? See, worship is what all of life is to be about. It's the purpose that we were made for. Don't let anything keep you, anything lesser keep you from that greater purpose because that's where you find peace and joy and fulfillment. That's where you encounter God himself. Are you coming to him? And are you coming through Jesus? Jesus came to make it possible for us to find the ultimate purpose in our life, to remove these obstacles, to make a way for us to find peace joy, fulfillment in him forever. Let's come to him and worship. Let's stand and worship together.